All right, and welcome back to another episode of the Business of Fitness Podcast. I'm Jason Klepa, and on today's episode, we have CEO and founder of Whoop, Will Ahmed. If you don't know what Whoop is, it's a wearable product. He explains it significantly better than I can, so I'll let him explain it in the episode. But the reason why I was so intrigued by getting Will on the show is the background, right? Is how did he start the business? How did he develop the business? What is it like to uh, take on all this funding to create this product? And why did he create the product in the first place? I think anybody as a gym owner, a business owner, or anything can take away a lot from this episode. The team over at Whoop were kind enough to give us a discount code. If you go to their website, whoop.com, and you get a membership option there, just go ahead and put in a capital AMRAP, (laughs) of course, capital AMRAP, to go ahead and get $30 off your membership or off your purchase. In addition, if you're a gym owner out there, if you're a coach out there, and you're struggling to get your session plans and your programming done, we go ahead and put ours out to different communities. So we created our own app and our own programs for our locations worldwide. Now we provide that to other gym owners. If you're interested, shoot us an email to collective at nc.fit to get a free trial and check it out. Now, without any more to do, we got to get into this episode, guys. Stay tuned for an awesome one. Let's talk about funding. Let's talk about Will. Let's talk about his background. I'm fired up. I hope you are. And let's dive into the episode. Hear more about what Whoop is, but also kind of like the business side of it. What I'm really interested in is I've I've known of you about you guys for a while now. You've been in the marketplace for years, and you kind of came into the CrossFit space. And I'd like to know more about how the business was started, what um, obstacles you had to overcome to start something like this. Because I imagine from a funding perspective, and then also find out more about what the product actually is. Does that sound good? Sounds amazing. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So um, I want to kind of back up and start with, you were at Harvard playing squash. Yep. How did you get the idea, or what is Whoop, to summarize it, and then how did you get the idea for it? Yeah, absolutely. So our mission at Whoop is really to unlock human performance. So we believe every individual has an inner potential that you can tap into if you can better understand the human body. And we've built a system, a wearable system, uh, designed to monitor the body 24-7. So we measure stress and strain, we measure recovery, and we measure sleep. And using those foundations, we're able to tell an individual what they need to do to perform. So it's a 24-7 system. You get analytics on your body. You get coached how to, uh, how to train more effectively or how to recover or how to sleep more effectively. Uh, and it allows people to improve performance. I got into the space personally because I was always into uh, sports and exercise. And like you said, I was playing squash while I was at Harvard. Yeah. And D1 though. Yeah. I mean, that's not a club sport there. I mean, that's, that's you're, you're. Yeah. We, we were always top three, top four in the country. Dude. So it was exciting. And for anybody who hasn't played squash or racquetball before, they have no idea the, the tax. I mean, it's, it's, that's a hard sport. It's, it's, it's definitely cardiovascularly like, yeah. really, really tough on your body. Uh, and I was someone who used to overtrain in college. And so I was someone who, you know, would be doing extra sets after, after practice or playing extra games. And I would always get to be one of the fittest people on the team, but I would also go through this period where, uh, my body was just all of a sudden run down. Right. And you've probably had this happen to yourself, right? Where yeah. You, you know, you just overtrain and you don't know why. Like it feels like you're going up a mountain, you're, you're, you're peaking, you're peaking, you're peaking, and then all of a sudden you just fall off a cliff. And I wanted to understand how that was happening, right? Like what sorts of things 
could I do or understand about my body to prevent that from happening? So, you know, I was at Harvard. It's a brilliant uh, institution. I was surrounded by really smart (laughs) people. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so I I said, okay, I'm going to try to do some research on this. And so I started um, reading everything I could about uh, about training and physiology. And next thing I knew, I'd probably read 500 medical papers while I was in school. And I wrote a, uh, a thesis around how to continuously understand the human body. And that, oh. was, and that was the launch point. Yeah. Okay. And this was your senior year at Harvard? Yeah. So I first had the idea for WHOOP or just, just the you know, inclination that there should be a better way to understand the body. Uh, I would say even as, as early as my freshman year. So I had been thinking of, you know, and that was about 10 years ago. So I'd been, I've been thinking about this for just a really long time. But when I was in college, uh, a lot of it came back to being surrounded by athletes who were overtraining or getting injured or misinterpreting fitness peaks, you know, not necessarily understanding the importance of recovery or sleep. What does partying do to your body? Right. Right. These are just all questions that I had as a, as a college athlete. And, and I felt like more people should have, to be honest, like it was weird to me that, we spend so much time dissecting what happens at a practice, but we don't necessarily understand what, what was the effect of that on your body, right? What was the effect of training on your body and how did your body respond to it? And so that's where uh, I, I came up with this, this concept around measuring uh, strain and recovery, right? In simple terms, I felt that if your body was more recovered, you can take on more strain, and if your body's less recovered, you should take on less strain. And my sense was that I was probably someone at various points in the season whose body was actually run down, but I couldn't feel it. And I would take on a lot of stress that day. And I would do it day over day, and that's how I would overtrain my body. And sure enough, that's what we see today with WHOOP and how we're able to monitor athletes and, and individuals. Well, yeah, that's really interesting because in the team sports in particular, the team generally has a similar practice across the whole group. But maybe some have different lifestyle factors that have came into play that others might not. And maybe some of them need to ramp up their training that day. Others might need to reduce back, right? Maybe they didn't sleep well. Maybe they have a bunch of different tests they've been studying for. And it's really interesting. So how do you, when you first came up with the idea as a freshman and then you actually launched it your senior year, is that right? The- uh, yeah. So I founded Whoop my senior year uh, and that's when I met my co-founders. But I want to go back to that point you just made, right? The, the other thing, if you think about team sports or even if you're in a group setting where you're trying to train 20 people in a gym, yeah. right? Like you're dealing with a bunch of different bodies in any given moment. You know, on uh, the way we would train for, for Harvard squash, and it was similar to the soccer team or lacrosse team, is you'd effectively have a weekly event, a weekly game, a weekly match, right? And for us, that was on Saturday. So what we would try to do as a team is we'd, we'd train hard on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then we were taper Thursday and Friday to peak on Saturday. Right. Now, the fascinating thing is over the course of that journey of a week, you've got people's bodies doing very different things. So the assumption that that coaching staff is making is that on Monday and Tuesday, everyone's uh, fully fresh. They're ready. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and so you're going you're gonna to hammer their bodies, right. right? And then the idea is over the course of the rest of the week, your body slowly, um, slowly needs to recover and come back to peak on that, on that Saturday. And so what's interesting is we've now seen this across you know, hundreds of the best sports properties in the world where we'll ask a coach or a trainer, hey, what did you want your team to do today? And, what did, and then we can look at the data and see what actually happened. So we have a very objective measurement of strain, 
right, which is based on um, a number of different cardiovascular factors. We've got a sensor that's measuring your body across five sensors 100 times a second. Uh, we're measuring heart rate and heart rate variability and skin temperature and all sorts of things um, related to motion. So it gives you a very holistic understanding uh, of strain uh, and, and a number of other things. But with strain, we can measure from zero to 21. How much strain did you put on your body? And so back to this analogy of over the course of a week, right? Yeah. Think of, uh, you know, 18, 19, those are like all out workouts. Like your body is really tired after that, right? And, and you know that you're at an 18 or 19 based off. So if I'm wearing your band and I'm doing a CrossFit style workout, let's just say, yeah. what, what indicators show that I hit an 18 or 19 for my workout? Was that because my heart rate was X for X amount of time? Like one of the main inputs that we'll see is, so, so the first thing Whoop does is it baselines you right? Over the first three, four days that you're on Whoop, we're just baselining who we think you are, right? So, okay, we, we're, we're going to know a lot of personal information about you just that you're going to input into the app, you know, your age and your height and your weight and your gender, things like that. But then we're also collecting a lot of um, biomarkers, right? So what's your max heart rate? What's your resting heart rate? What's your heart rate variability? What do we perceive to be your anaerobic threshold? And then what we do is we analyze all the raw data through the lens of who you are. And that's powerful because it allows us to give a personalized strain score. Mm. So you and I could go out on the mat right now and we could do the same exact CrossFit workout. Let's pretend that I did the same exact workout as you, right? Sure. Yeah. What, what would actually happen though is I would have a much higher strain than you because my body's not going to be as used to doing that type of a workout as you, even if I was able to just follow you step for step. You know, the running analogy is a little simpler to understand. If you have two athletes run a six-minute mile, they may have very different um, strain levels, even though they had the same output, right? Yeah, based on someone's, uh, uh, yes. So if someone has a five-minute mile and someone else, their peak was a six-minute mile, right? It's a different, that's a different uh, strain on the body because of that. Well, what I'm saying is even if they both did five-minute miles, so they both had oh. the same output, but internally what happened was quite different. Huh. So that's what we're able to measure, right? Because you've got two different things. You've got this concept of external load and you've got this concept of internal load. External loads, like what, what was your body able to do? It's, uh, you know, things related to pace and, and uh, speed and uh, distance, right? Internal loads, like what was the tax on your physiology, right? What did it require your body's output to be? Even if they're at the same time, we could... And they had, let's just say they had the same PR mile time, yeah. but they ran a mile and they hit the exact same time. Excuse me, if they had different PR mile times, but they hit the same time in their, in their current mile, you're saying that the, the strain on the body could be completely different for each one of them. Completely different. And by the way, it could be completely different for the same person on two different days. Right. That's the other fascinating thing is you and I could go run a six minute mile every single day for a week and we may get different strain scores each day depending on how recovered our body is. Huh. So let me go back to the original story, right? So you have this, this concept of training over the course of a week to peak on Saturday, right? Right. So on Whoop, you know, what you'd want that to look like for every individual is something like 19, 17, 17, 12, 10, right? It's a zero to 21 point scale, you know, 19 yep. and 18 being high scores, 12, 10, you're, you know, you're barely doing anything, right? Like it's a light workout, right? What we actually see is that it's about 15, 15, 15, 15, 15. 
Hmm. And what's crazy about that is you have athletes undertraining on the first couple days and you have them overtraining on the last few days. And the reason for this is over the course of a week as you're approaching a game, often you'll see athletes start to sleep more and recover because they're anticipating this event. Huh. And so their body starts getting amped up and they can't actually feel the stress that they're putting on their body. Right. A lot of this came back to this idea that feelings are largely overrated when it comes to understanding what's happening internally. Huh. That's, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, leading up to a big event, right. The, 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 the strain on you mentally is it's, you don't, might not even realize it, but it's starting to weigh on you. Right. right. It's, it's, and so obviously, you know, we're looking at this and we're talking about how, why you created it. And I think it's fascinating, but I'd like to talk about how did the business, I mean, when I think about a guy who's created a band to wear on your wrist, that has so many indicators. You have your own app, everything. I imagine the funding for that must have been astronomical. And how do you even go from being a guy? Let's just say you're a let's just say you're a business owner, aspiring business owner, and you want you have an idea for something, which in your case was Whoop, right? <clears throat> but I mean, dude, going from like you know, if I want to start like a coffee shop, I need X amount of dollars. But if I want to start a revolutionary uh, sport wristband that could change recovery forever. <laughs> I mean, how do you even go from step one conceptual to step two, actually sitting here today, years later with the business in mind? What did that process look like? Yeah. So I think the, the first thing is you need to have great partners like anything, right? And so um, my background was understanding physiology and having a strong point of view on where I thought the product could go, right? What I thought users should interact with, coaches, um, athletes, anyone beyond that, right? Uh, I didn't have the, the technical chops to actually develop hardware uh, and algorithms that could do some of the analysis that I had researched, right? Right. I mean, that there needed to be a real technological breakthrough. Because what did you master? Uh, what did you? Um, well, technically, study? I studied government and economics, so oh. <laughs> so I was you know I was straying from the pack a little uh, yeah. over the course of my time there, and I was fortunate that by the end of my uh, time at Harvard, I met uh, John Capilupo. Uh, who is one of my co-founders and our chief technology officer. And John uh, <clears throat> John was studying some of the hardest math classes in the country. And his father, as it turns out, is a professor of exercise physiology. Okay. So, yeah, so slam dunk. And, uh, and we hit it off, and we started working together that summer out of the Harvard Innovation Lab. And we had a real overlap around physiology, which really needed, I think, to be the backbone of what we were doing. And John had the technical chops to do some things from a sensing and algorithm standpoint that hadn't been done before. And I had a vision for how to build a product for coaches, athletes, and beyond. So just like that, we were, we were off the ground from, a, from an ideation standpoint. Right. Now, the thing that happened quickly is we realized, okay, we've got all these ideas for how to build hardware. Mind you, we had to build hardware, which is uh, expensive and has all kinds of yeah, issues with it. Did you have to go overseas, I assume? Yeah, we'll get there in a second. Yeah. So, uh, so I say to John, uh, you know, it'd be great if we could rapidly prototype uh, some of the ideas that we have for, from a hardware standpoint. And this was right, you know, this is about five, six years ago. We're talking about the early stages of uh, 3D printing right? So 3D printers, you know, yeah, you can, yeah. and you can make things cheaply. And he said, you know, it's funny, I've got this guy like living on my couch right now. I think things didn't work out for his job. He just graduated from Harvard. Apparently he's a mechanical engineer. What? Yeah. So, yeah. so I say, oh, great. Let's yeah, bring him down to the iLab. And so this really smart uh, uh, Romanian comes down to the iLab to meet, to meet with us. 
And by the way, if you meet anyone who's from Romania who went to Harvard, they're they're like genius level because every year Harvard accepts like two or three Romanians and they're like the smartest in the region. <laughs> so that's always a good sign. Yeah, like- and and uh, and sure enough, I met Aurelian, uh, Aurelian Nikolai, who became our third co-founder. And he was known as the king of the 3D printer at Harvard because he would rapidly prototype all these things in school. Now, it's funny, connecting the dots backwards, it sounds like, uh, you know, a lot of luck and very serendipitous. But what you don't hear is probably all the different people we met with. How many people do you think you met with leading up to that point? Because, I mean, it sounds like to me, some doors opened up and you, it sounds like to me it was like a fate, but, but maybe, but how many, how long did it take you to get to that point? Well, you know, this as an entrepreneur yourself, like there's so many, I think there's so many times where you take a shot on goal and miss, Yeah. but people only see the shots you make. Right. And so that, that was a lot, I think a lot of how I look back on those early days of, of meeting John and Aurelian or some of the initial capital that we raised. Like I met a lot of other people that I thought, you know, could have, um, you know, could have, been valuable to to helping build this business and they you know they either just weren't nearly as capable as i had hoped they would be or um you know they fizzled out and uh and then when you meet the right people i think the learning is you have to move quickly and and make sure you know make sure you're off for the races and give them opportunity i assume so so this gentleman sleeping on the couch you met this person so how did how did you guys go from 3d printing right conceptualizing to actually funding. And at that point, how many people were involved in the business? Cause you have three co-founders now, mm-hmm. right? Did you guys have a formal partnership agreement? I mean, you guys formalized everything I imagine. Yeah. I mean, the, the fascinating thing was John was still an undergraduate at Harvard. So he, uh, you know, we were figuring out, was he going to go back to school or not? Unfortunately, he, he decided to, to drop out to pursue whoop. So at that point, it was really important that we had funding in place and we had, uh, and we had, you know, documentation and everything, because, you know, if, if a guy's not going to go back to school or, you know, Aurelian was from Romania, so we need to make sure everything was okay from an immigration standpoint. So you want to make sure you get the foundation of the business, right? I mean, I think that's, that's true for anything you do. You want to get the foundation, right? Because you got to build everything on top of that. So how did you, how did you build the foundation, right? What did you do that you feel like you built the foundation, right? Well, you know, you have very, uh, you have very clear goals, right? And I think the, the, the thing that we did right is we figured out what do we need to de-risk at each of these stages to attract more capital or attract more talent, right? Mm-hmm. Because we, we knew that like, at, you know, out of, out of the gates, we weren't going to build the thing that's on my wrist right now and this whole ecosystem. We needed to de-risk each stage. So if you go back in time six years ago, uh, the chest strap was still a popular tool, right? Uh, Hare monitor. I'm sure right, you've worn it. Yeah, them. of course. Yeah. And I actually was wearing them most of my, my time senior year at, at Harvard during practice because I thought the data was really interesting. And I said to myself, you know, if we could just replace this chest strap, that would probably be uh, enough to convince investors, okay, there's something here. Now, the bigger vision, of course, is human performance and unlocking human performance and 24-7 monitoring. But if we can prove that uh, from, from the wrist, we can accurately measure uh, heart rate and heart rate variability, which had never been done before, uh, you know, at least we can prove we're going to displace this one technology, the chest strap, right? And by the way, 10 million chest straps were getting sold a year back then. So that was a fairly simple story. Hey, we're going to build this hardware and at, at a bare minimum, we're just going to replace this chest strap. 
Right. Now the big the big pitch is what Whoop is today, which is hey, we're going to be you know monitoring the body twenty four seven. We think we can uh, tell people how to improve their performance, and we think it's going to have applications from the best athletes in the world to the military to everyday consumers. Right. That was the big pitch, but in order to go from you know, it's not even from one to two, it's from, you know, point, well, point one <laughs> to one. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so, you know, we, we were able to raise a few hundred thousand dollars. Um, and this was from, uh, family members and, and former bosses and a couple strategic angel investors. And we were able with that capital to build prototypes that could measure heart rate, um, accurately from the wrist. And to put this in perspective, like, we're talking the apparatus that could measure heart rate, by the way. It was a box that was about three times the size of your head. It had a huge cord that came out of it, bigger than this cord, you know, off my neck right now. Yeah. Uh, and it then connected to an enormous wristband that had sensors in it, right? And by the way, that box had to also be tethered to a computer. Oh. But, but. But the, you wanted to prove the but model. But the important thing was that off of that wristband, we were able to show data that correlated directly with a chest strap. And we were able to measure something called heart rate variability, which we can talk about, which um, hadn't been done before. And all this comes back to the algorithm development and sort of the unique point of view that we originally from, the, from out of the gates had about how to measure things on your body. And so even though there was this ridiculous looking apparatus and, uh, and it was certainly not something anyone would ever wear, it proved that we had developed an algorithm that was actually quite compelling. And so all of a sudden we checked the box, right? And, and investors say, okay, well, you know, they, they were able to build this, this algorithm. It's clearly a core team is here. There's a big vision. They could replace the chest strap at a bare minimum. And yeah, with some more capital, they can turn this enormous box into something that's smaller. Right. Right. Because that, you know, that's the kind of thing that's been done before. Like you put money and then you refine manufacturing and you get something smaller. Not to say it's easy by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, it's possible. That's really interesting. So you, you started out uh, going from minimal investment to proof of concept, yeah. which you did. And then after that, was it a lot easier to get investors to, <clears throat> to double down on their investment? Did you get the same people? Did you get new people? Did you bring in institutional? Because uh, I mean, at this point, at, from where you were six years ago to today, how much have you raised since then? If you're, yeah, we've raised uh, over fifty million dollars. So it's been, uh, yeah. <laughs> so going from three hundred thousand, yeah, going from three hundred thousand to fifty million, yeah. So what, what is that process? I mean, I, I, that boggles my mind, right? Because I, we, many people who are listening, and, and myself included, we've never had to raise that type of money. And so, what type of hurdles did you have to overcome on your way from three hundred thousand? Which I can wrap my head around what you're saying, the proof of concept, and then going from there. How'd you go from that to 50 million? I mean, how does it? Yeah. I, I mean, first of all, we did it in bite sizes, right? Like we didn't go from 300K to literally raising 50 million. Right, right, right. If you look at our rounds of financing, we went from, you know, 300 grand and then we, we raised, I think it was probably 400 or 500 grand of new capital. And that was from more strategic individuals. So people who had helped, you know, there's a lot of people out there who help young technology businesses grow and get started. And so we're able to meet some really... Um, Really helpful people in that regard. Nicholas Negroponte was one of uh, one of those people. He was the founder of the MIT Media Lab and One Laptop Per Child. Real thought leader in in Boston and actually in, in the country. And uh, and so he was someone who helped us, you know, think about design and think about hiring and uh, and you need those people early on, right? Especially if you're you're you were like me or John. I mean, John was 
19 years old. I was 22, right? So like, these, were these like, men, um, excuse me, mentors for you? Did you have, so these were yeah. mentors that kind of yeah, organically a, came into your life? Or? Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, you, you have someone uh, invest in your business and they'll also coach you on how to, how to grow it, you know? And, and I think that's super important for anyone who is trying to start a business. It doesn't matter if it's a, a tech startup. It doesn't matter if it's uh, a new local gym. There's so many people out there who have tried to do um, tried to do something in the realm of what you're doing, right? And even if they haven't, they've tried to build something. And you can learn a lot from other people who have tried to build something. I think the, you know, your point about going from 300,000 to 50 million, like when I was uh, 22, I think the mistake that I made, and I see a lot of founders make, is that they compare themselves to uh, other entrepreneurs and other founders who are much further along on the journey, right? Like I was, I would compare myself or I would read, you know, these articles every day on TechCrunch about, oh, this entrepreneur just raised 20 million for this or 30 million for that. And, you know, changing this and changing the world there. And, and it makes you feel like, gosh, like I can't even raise a hundred grand right now. Like we are running out of money, you know, what are we going to do? And I think the, the, again, the mistake is, is when you, when, when those entrepreneurs were at your stage, they knew just as little as you, right? You have to keep in mind that not only is the business going to get better, you're going to get better, right? Right. And so when you ask the question of, did it get harder at each one of those stages? I actually think it was just as hard to raise that initial 300 grand as it was to raise, you know, a round of 25 million. Because, you know, one, you're, you're a more proven business along the way. So you do have to develop the business, but two, you yourself are more polished, right? Right. You've now gone through this cycle of raising capital before you've created a network of people, right? At that point I had hundreds of people maybe on my cap table, uh, you know, that, that could give me advice and introduce me to people. So it was much easier to get access to other investors. These things all build on themselves. So my point is if you're, if you're a first time entrepreneur or a founder and, you know, you don't necessarily, uh, you, you're, you're discouraged about the process that you're going through in raising capital. Just know that uh, you're only going to get better at it. Right. And so early on when you're, your initial fundraising, because that's a really interesting point that just like anything, it's like a skill, right? I'm sure you got better at squash when yeah, you right. went from, you know, a freshman to a senior, right? Of yeah. course. And the more, you know, reps you take, right? Uh, the better you're going to get at it. And so for your initial funding, um, did you pitch the deals? Did oh, of course. So you pitched the deals. Yeah. And, and what so, made you some feel cases, confident in that? Like what gave you the skills to go and ask somebody for money and what did you have to overcome to get that? Cause I imagine, was that the first time in your life you ever had to go ask for someone for money, like on a big scale like that? Oh yeah, of course. Of course. Right. Yeah. And, and it's so my first real job too. First real job. And so this is your first real job, your first real pitch, right? I mean, how did you mentally prepare for that to go into something? I mean, what did that look like? Cause we talk a lot about this idea of like earned confidence where your confidence builds because of all this data and you read 500 articles. I mean, did that help you when you went for those pitches? Cause you had that to fall back on. How'd you do that? Well, I, you know, in a lot of those initial meetings, you go in and you pitch something and then you learn that it didn't quite make sense and you go back and you refine it. Right. So you have to approach it with a somewhat iterative point of view right? Okay. I'm trying to raise 500 grand. Mm, seems like people think that's too much. I'm going to try to raise 300 grand. You know what I mean? Uh, so there's a little bit of that. There's also just this, 
you know, like anything in life, the more times you repeat something or do something, it starts to become second nature. So instead of, of warring in the back of your mind, what am I saying? Am I saying this properly? Am I communicating properly? You're actually thinking a couple steps ahead and you're no longer even worrying about what your pitch is. You're thinking, okay, has this person reacting? What might there be reservations? And you're adapting on the fly. How many times did you have to pitch before you actually got the yes? Well, one, one thing I would say is that you can always find a new investor faster than you can convince an old investor who's on the fence. So say, say you're now on your sixth meeting with an investor and he's, you know, he wants to come in, but he still has some reservations and, hey, can we do another call to talk about this thing we just talked about? That person's probably never going to invest. Huh. They're not going to get there, but they're going to waste a ton of your time. Whereas, <laughs> okay. it, it, whereas if you jump to the next guy and the next guy and the next, there's always someone else out there. I guarantee you that. And so that took me a long time to fully internalize that, you know, you, you have to move on at times. And, uh, and so I think that was one of the more important things that I learned with time is just, Hey, there's always one more investor. Cause again, as a founder and entrepreneur, you build up in your mind, Oh, I just met the perfect investor, or I just met the perfect person to hire, or I just met uh, this customer who we have to have. And the reality is that there's often, there's often more and, and not to get too obsessed with any, uh, any one entity. That's so funny. I think that correlates in everything. You know, like when we were doing business deals, we get so wrapped up in a deal and that almost at times, like you, you might not even act in the best interest of the business yourself because you get emotionally attached to it, right? I mean, I imagine that happens to investors where maybe you know it's not the perfect fit, but you get excited about it or maybe you have some type of relationship with them. And I imagine that part's challenging. And so over the years with the investing in this thing, how has your team grown? So you went from three co-founders. Now, how many people work at Whoop? We're about 50 employees today. Okay. Yeah. And what does the business model look like? Because I'm pretty intrigued by it in the sense that when I look at like Fitbit as an example, I'm not saying it's a competitor of yours. I'm just saying as a company, you purchase a unit for hundred bucks, whatever, and it, and it <clears throat> supplies you data, but you don't pay a reoccurring fee. Now with your company, from what I gather, the, the band itself, I imagine it's, it's not a, it's almost free, but you're paying for a subscription to your monthly service. So you guys have a month, monthly service revenue model, which most gyms do, right? Right. Versus a single time use. How'd you come up with that concept from a business model perspective? Because I think it's really genius because you get this monthly reoccurring revenue. Yeah. You know, first of all, it took us time to get there and realize that that was the right path forwards. Um, you know, we had been in the consumer market for about a year, year and a half where we were just selling it as hardware. And we realized that people were obsessed with the product and really engaging at a high level. And we also found that we were communicating a lot with our users. Like we were answering a lot of questions about data. We were creating reports for individuals. And we realized that Whoop was actually less about the hardware and more about this idea of the analytics and the community, right? And in fact, you're not paying for the hardware when you buy Whoop. You're actually paying for this ongoing service to understand your body. And so that's where we, we changed the business model and we focused on how do we deliver value to our customers every day, every month, every year, right? Where you're, you know, it's much more like Netflix where you didn't sign up for Netflix for all the shows previously. You sign, you sign up for the stuff they're coming out with. And with Whoop, you know, there's such, a, such an important amount of information that we're creating every day and we're trying to create new features 
every week, every month, so that uh, our user base is constantly feeling refreshed and learning more and more about their bodies. You know, we think of Whoop as more of a coach or a trainer yeah. than as a piece of hardware. I was going to say, I mean, it relates very well to the gym business, right? Is that you know you need to consistently add value every day because what we say is you're one bad experience away from losing a member, right? If they come in for a bad for a class totally. and they have a bad experience, they might never come back. And with Whoop, it sounds like you guys are on this trajectory where you're just constantly adding value. How did you do that shift from hardware was the was the business model? I assume when you were pitching your early investors, I imagine you didn't have the monthly subscription as a focus point for revenue model. Am I right? Well. We also have an elite business, just to be clear, which is has always been a subscription. And the elite business was is much like the, the consumer businesses today, where it's an ongoing service, right? You're providing a lot of reports to teams, you're providing dashboards, different access levels, a high level of customer service, right? And so we learned from that elite business, you know, this is where we're working with hundreds of the best sports properties in the world. And we said, okay, let's let's also bring some of that learning into the consumer market, right. and that's where again we've seen really really positive feedback. That's really that's really interesting. And so, from a business perspective, for Whoop, where are you guys trying to head in the next three years? You guys started off with um, elite athletes, with Jen Trinkle down to to college, and now you're open to many consumers, from CrossFit to running to all different types of events. I assume. Moving forward, where does Whoop want to go? I mean, what does that look like? Yeah, I think, you know, one big thing that we're developing on right now is the whole um, coaching aspect, right? So the way Whoop works today is you wake up in the morning with a recovery score. That recovery score is telling you how ready you are, how much strain we think you should take on your body, right? Back to that concept of of overtraining or undertraining. You want to match recovery with stress. You want to match recovery with strain. So Whoop tells you your recovery and then it recommends how much strain you should put on your body. And then over the course of the day, you accumulate strain. Now, that could be in the form of workouts, daily activity, stress, right? And then at the end of the day, we look at the stress that's accumulated on your body. We look at who you are, right? Maybe sleep debt that's accumulated on your body. And we actually tell you, okay, Jason, before you go to bed tonight, this is how much sleep you need to recover for tomorrow. Right. Right. And so each, if you think about each uh, layer there, recovery, strain, and sleep, those are all things we want to keep doubling down on to get smarter from a coaching standpoint. So with sleep, for example, we just launched an update based on a lot of medical literature that we looked at. So I'll give you the example. So the the National Institute of Health came out with a study that showed that uh, students at Harvard who were sleeping at more regular times actually had higher GPAs than students who were sleeping longer, right? Okay. So just think about that. It's less important how long you sleep, more important that you're going to bed and waking up at the same time, right? So what's powerful about Whoop is we were able to then run that analysis through two and a half million sleep data sets, right? They did it on 60 people. We did it on two and a half million data sets. And we realized, okay, yeah, indeed. If you go to bed and wake up at the same time, your readouts the next day are better on Whoop. You've got a lower resting heart rate, higher heart rate variability. Again, this is all versus your baselines. So we then looked at our sleep coach, which recommends how much time you should sleep, and we updated the feature to also include when we recommend you should go to bed time you and wake bed. up. Yep. So that's one very specific example, but I think it demonstrates where we're going as a business, right? We're going to keep learning. We're going to learn um, from medical literature, and we're also going to learn from the fact that our population is growing enormously. And, uh, and then we're going to feed that back to our user base so that they can perform better. 
you know, on the strain side, we're working on uh, coaching algorithms that are going to be able to tell you what are the right exercises for you to do, given how recovered you are, right? Now, beyond that, and I think this goes to your question of where we're going in the next couple of years, we're also working on a lot around community. So today we actually have a number of gyms that use Whoop and all their members um, so that they can engage with one another, compete with one another. And then the gym has a central hub where they can look at all the people who come to, to their gym. You know, in some ways, I think the, the biggest risk to gyms is that you're only spending, you know, one hour, two hours, three hours a week with someone. Right. Yep. And then, and then they disappear. So much the same way that Whoop has been able to connect uh, coaches and athletes 24-7, we're now starting to do that with trainers and clients. Right. And so it's not just, hey, what was your workout uh, today in the gym with me? It's, hey, I saw you did a great workout uh, tomorrow or I saw you did a great workout yesterday. Um, I see you're run down right now. We're going to change the the plan for today. It feels much more coaching. Individualized. Yeah, much yeah. more individualized. Well, that's interesting. I mean, we talk about the 23 to 1 rule, but we mainly talk about this with food. Is like you exercise one hour a day and you have 23 hours to mess it up, right? Like, yeah, right. We, generally, we're talking about nutrition. Um, super fascinating. I really appreciate that um, you founded a company with co-founders uh, of a company that is striving to improve constantly. I think that any business owner, including us, right? We strive every day to think about how we're going to add more value to our members, how we're going to add value to our coaches and our team. And that's what it seems like you guys are founded on and which is really, really cool. What are some of the things you think are, are changing in the gym industry right now? Well, I think from a gym industry perspective, early on, it was a conventional gym, right? Then these boutique gyms started to come up like CrossFit. I mean, about a decade ago, right? When we got started 10, 11 years ago, it started kind of kicking off. Now you have the berries and the soul cycles. And I think, right. I think where the industry is in a shift towards is more personalized, um, more group setting where people are raising the bar of each other together. Meaning when you go to the gym and, and the atmosphere is kind of like you feed off the energy, right? And so I think where the, where the industry will shift is personal training will always be popular. The conventional gym will always be popular. But I think these boutique gyms will continue to grow and thrive, specifically ones that tailor their programming to cater to a larger audience. So like for us, we don't just offer CrossFit. We have more programs, but it's focused on a coach and a community and a group of people who are trying to elevate each other with their effort in the gym. Like you did when you were playing squash, you had better workouts when you were surrounded by your buddies than when you try and go in by yourself. So I think that's right. where the industry will continue to shift but these two will still be popular. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with your piece on community. I think that's so important. This idea that I think that's what soul cycle did really well. And Barry's bootcamp is now doing really well. And you know, you've got a group of people that feel like a tribe when they go work out together. That's right. And CrossFit's done a great job of that too. And so moving forward, yeah, um, CrossFit really yeah, they, set, they, the they set the tone, yeah. right? It goes without saying almost. So now if people want to have more information about whoop, the product, uh, about you, um, where can people find more information about the product itself? Where, where can they go? Yeah. So you can uh, check us out on whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P. <laughs> That's pretty dot easy. Com. Yeah. Whoop seems to be a name people remember. Yeah. And, uh, and you can learn more about the product there. You can sign up for a membership. Uh, you can also re reach out to uh, our membership services team if you have questions or uh, if you want to learn more about um, some of the group pricing and things like that. Uh, we are um, on social media at whoop. 
W-H-O-O-P. Yep. Uh, you can find us pretty much on any social media platform. And we're actually coming out with a Whoop podcast shortly. So I'm going to be sitting down with a bunch of really interesting guests, uh, you know, thought leaders across technology and sports and performance, a uh, number of really, really interesting people uh, who have had fascinating careers. We're talking about their careers. We're talking about where they think sports and data and tech are going and how all these things collide uh, and should hopefully be a pretty interesting podcast. Uh, pretty interesting podcast for people and uh and yeah you can find me uh, online at will ahmed and happy to answer any questions too that people have perfect all right well hey thank you very much for your time and uh until next time guys keep rising the tides and have a great day all right thanks man